0: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 50 through 52.
1: When I was a teenager, I happened to be on a prophecy memory kick. I was, uh, I I happened to run, I came across 13, 6, Zechariah 13, verse 6, where it says, And one shall say unto them, What are these wounds in thine hands? And one shall answer, I mean, and he shall answer. Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I thought, wow, wounds in the hands, that's a prophecy thing. I, in those days, would take a little card and I'd write the verse on one side and the reference on the other and put it in my little group to try to, you know, learn it. I was on the, I was the kick in those days. But then as I started to try to memorize it, I began to realize, I don't know what that says. Wait a minute, come on here. It says, what? It says, uh, one shall say to them, What are these wounds in thine hands? Okay. Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Well, I had a problem right there because. I could not visualize a group of timbers up on a, on a hill in Judea surrounded by Roman soldiers driving these nails into his hands on this hill as being the house of his friends. Now you can use very gracious idioms with regards to the Roman soldiers, but I would not call that the house of his friends. But then I had another problem. What are these wounds in my hands? Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And then I realized what this is really talking about. I remembered how in the Gospels, when he appears that first night, they're all shocked and surprised, right? But there's one that's missing. Remember Thomas? He wasn't present that night. And so the next day or whenever, they run the time, Hey, Thomas, boy, you should have been at the Bible study. Last night, let me tell you who showed up, you know. (laughs) And he probably said something like, yeah, yeah, I hear you. But unless I put my fingers in his nail prints and my hand on his side, I can't buy that story. So next time they're all together, Thomas with them, and once again Jesus appears, and this time he says, Okay, Thomas. Right? Thomas falls on his knees and says, My Lord and my God. Jesus says, Thomas, you've seen and believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and believe. Right? You all know the story. I think Zechariah writing 800 years before Christ was born, translated into Greek, three centuries before he was born, listened to the voice of Jesus. What are these wounds in thine hands? Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. What wounded Jesus Christ was not the spikes driven by the Romans in the spirit of somebody here. What hurt him was Thomas's doubt, his unbelief. That's what wounded him. Interesting, interesting element. Does Jesus Christ bear the scars? of his humiliation. Yes, we see that in the gospels. What we are not prepared for, what would never occurs to us unless we read Isaiah very carefully, is that among the abuses of the Romans they tore off his beard. What does that do to a guy? Yes, it heals or scar tissue. Does that mean he's disfigured? It's interesting when we get to Revelation chapter six Let's turn back to Revelation chapter excuse me, chapter five. Revelation chapter five. John is transported through time ahead in heaven in time. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now if you've done your homework in Jeremiah thirty two in the book of Ruth, you know it's a title deed, apparently of the whole earth. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals? And no man in heaven or in earth, neither under the earth. That in itself is an interesting dichotomy. Neither, no man in heaven nor in earth, nor either under the earth, is able to open the scroll, neither to look upon it. It had to be a man. That's interesting. It had to be a kinsman of Adam. We're talking about redemption here, the laws of redemption. It's a title deed. had to be a kinsman. No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the scroll, neither to look upon it. And I wept much, or literally... I sobbed convulsively because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book. look You and I don't understand what's going on, but John did. John understood the significance that if no man could be found, we were all in trouble. But that's the generalization. Now we have the exception. One of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. Those are both titles of whom? Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed or overcome to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood what? The Lion? Yes, but by another title. The Lion of the tribe of Judah is one title, here's another title. The Lamb, as it had been slain. That's interesting. When Jesus Christ first appears publicly, John the Baptist says, "Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world." That's, his, that's a very Jewish title, the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. What's the Lamb? Why is it a lamb? Why is it, what's the destiny of the Lamb? To be slain. But here we see the Lamb as it had been slain, having seven hordes and seven eyes, and those are those as are, a quote from Isaiah 11, and so forth. <laughs> Somebody once said. There's only one man-made thing in heaven. That's Christ's scars. It's interesting. Someone told me a story of a little girl whose mother happened to be badly disfigured, had a very disfigured face. And the little girl, when she went through the, the low grades in school, the, the lower grades, the, the other girls made fun of her because she had this mother with a weird face. You know how kids are. They're often very thoughtless. When the little girl grew up to be old enough, the mother explained to her that one reason she has these scars is that when she was an infant there was a fire in the apartment and she had to go through that to rescue the little girl to save her life and in in that rescue she endured some very serious burns that left the disfigurement. And from that day on, the little girl was no longer embarrassed about her mother because those scars were a demonstration to her how much her mother loved her. You and I are going to see the Lord Jesus Christ eternity. The question I don't know the answer to, w- will we see the nail prints? Will we see the wound in the side? Will we see the results of his disfigurement? at the hands of the Romans? Are the marks of His humiliation His glory? Just what did it cost Him that you and I might live? Because who put Him on the cross? I did. You did. That was the price he had to pay. Now, very candidly, the real cost is far beyond any of that that we can comprehend. The physical suffering, brutal though it may be, is probably a small part of the equation. You and I have no concept of what it means for someone who is perfect, who is righteous, who has never sinned to be made sin for us. We have no concept of that. We may study it intellectually, theologically. We may try to approach some comprehension of it, but there's no way we can understand what it cost him. What, it, what caused him to scream out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The first words of the cross, first line of Psalm 22. His last words on the cross is the way Psalm 22 closes. It is finished. In the Greek, "To tell us die," which also can be translated "Paid in full." The price of your sin and mine is eternal separation from God. And somehow, in the many dimensions of Christ's existence, He paid that price. He did the whole job. You can't add to it. He did everything. The destiny that he purchased for you is available for the asking. It is arrogant and presumption uh, presumptuous of us to add, try to add anything to that. He did the whole job. Your salvation has been purchased, paid for by him, but at what a cost. A cost we, you and I can probably never fully understand. And yet, the few things we do understand should drive us to tears. That our Lord not only bears some nail prints on his wrists and his side, but may suffer facial disfigurement for eternity. He didn't become a man, by the way for 33 years. When you first study the Bible, the amazing discovery is that God became man. Wow, that's a wild idea! And we absorb that and try to get it into our being. But then as we study further, the book of Romans and elsewhere, and we discover what righteousness really is from the Torah and from God's laws and from from both Christ's and Paul's and John's interpretation of them, we understand what righteousness really means. Then we begin to realize where man stands with respect to that righteousness, and we become aware of the gulf between the standard God requires for fellowship and the standard where we're at. Then we're confronted with an even more amazing discovery, not that God became man, but the amazing thing that you and I can grasp tonight, the miracle right now as we speak, is that there is a man on the throne of God. Wow! Wow! What does that mean? Well, that's what Revelation 6 through 19 lays out, because he's going to claim possession of that which he purchased in two stages. Us first, and then Israel second. Back to Isaiah. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from the shame and spitting. Just a little glimpse that Isaiah gives you this night to think about. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near who justifieth me. Who will contend with me, let us stand together. Who is mine adversary, let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they are all. They shall all grow old like a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of the servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that ye have kindled, this shall ye have of mine hand ye shall lie down in sorrow. The humiliation of God's Holy One. Interesting. But we'll keep moving here. Chapter 51. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look down unto the rock from which ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which ye are digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone. That is, as one. And blessed him and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He shall make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Strange passage, you know. The more you study, the more you realize we don't know much about Eden. We speak of the Garden of Eden. That was a garden east of Eden, huh? Well, where was the Garden of Eden? The traditional sites are always around Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent and all of that. That seems to be the, what we call the cradle of civilization. Well, if mean, that was the Garden of Eden, where was Eden? West of there, right? What's west of there? Israel. I've always wondered. I have no real basis for this, just an off-the-wall conjecture. But I've often wondered. Is God's peculiar interest in the land something to do with its history? Because you know his whole covenant with Israel, you, you read the Old Testament and it's all tangled up in the land, His land, unique piece of property, Land of Israel. Why? Why is that so special? Lots of neat places around the world. Why, what makes that so special? God's put his name on it. It's his. And it fascinates me as I read uh, you know, Ezekiel twenty eight, and we find the the origin of Satan. We find Eden there described very differently, different terms. Colored lights. Precious stones were their way of describing colored light. Strange, totally different d- d- existence. We have no idea what Eden was like prior to Genesis three. We only know it all post curse. Wonder what it was like before the curse. Was it only in three dimensional? Or the there more? Probably. Interesting. Anyway, he's going to make her wilderness like Eden, whatever that means. And a desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found at thanksgiving in the voice of glory. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my justice to rest for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the peoples. The coasts shall wait upon me, and on mine arm they shall trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. And look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke. And the earth shall grow old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Interesting. Those that dwell on the earth shall die in like manner. When you read the book of Revelation, be sensitive to the fact that there's a group of people frequently referred to called the earth dwellers. They that dwell upon the earth. And recognize that that phrase is intended to exclude you. You're always portrayed as pilgrims. You belong to another. You look for a city whose builder and maker is God. We're pilgrims. Our touch with the earth should be light, minimal. That which we need to do to subsist and keep the peace. But this isn't our home. This is not our home. The earth dwellers are, have their own destiny. And Revelation deals with that very articulately. Verse 7, Hearken unto me that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Ooh, what a wonderful thing. says law in your heart. Fear not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. Boy, how slow we are to learn that. How dare we embrace the opinions of others. What do they know? How fickle they are. How fickle they are. How meaningless it is. Fear not, neither be afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, the worm shall eat them like wool. but my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. And I was reminded the other evening, I had an old associate of mine that uh, showed up the study and we went off and had a cup of coffee together afterwards. Last time we were in a business deal together, it was a little tense because he was doing some things he shouldn't have been doing. Not a bad guy, just getting over his head and did some, made some mistakes. But I could tell he was, we need to get together, and he was sort of wondering if there was some forgiveness, and that was easy. I said, hey, what's amazing, I said, not an issue, what's amazing as you really put life in perspective, how unimportant those things are. He looked at me kind of surprised because he was, and it was a neat evening because we had a, Neat reconciliation. But it really is true. It wasn't a question of being forgiving. That was easy. The more important insight was how meaningless all those issues were of the past. It's interesting if we can just stand back and get the divine viewpoint. See, that's what the book of Job is really all about. If the book of Job is about why do the innocent suffer, it never solves the problem because it doesn't deal with that. That's never dealt with, really. What's the book of Job really all about? Maintaining the divine viewpoint. See, we're entitled in Job to a conversation up front that Job doesn't have the benefit of between Satan and God. So we see Job as we read it from God's point of view. See, and what the real lesson of the book of Job is, that's the way we need to look at our lives, to recognize there's probably conversations we haven't heard. And it's a question of trust. Somehow, to get our eyes on the Lord and not our problems or affairs or setbacks or tensions, the divine viewpoint. Awake, awake, verse 9. That phrase is going to appear three times here in verse 17 and then the opening of chapter 52. Sort of a marker, sort of a stylistic marker, if nothing else, maybe much more. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Was it not thou who hath cut Rahab and wounded the sea monster or dragon? The word Rahab can mean several things. It is, of course, you will associate it with the name of a girl in Joshua. But the word Rahab actually means the proud one, and it's also used of Egypt in in several cases. But here it says, was it not thou who hath cut Rahab? and I suspect this may be an allusion, if you will, to Egypt, and wounded the Leviathan or sea monster. This opens up a whole other can of peas. Who is the Leviathan in the book of Job? Some of the commentators as well. as a crocodile. No way does that fit in my mind. I'll let you get the Job tapes if you really want to get into it. But you can take a concordance and dig out the allusions to sea monsters, dragons, and Leviathans. And especially in Job, you'll find that in a couple of, not always, but in some of the cases, the language goes far beyond a physical creature. And there's something far deeper involved, and that may be the allusion here. But I'll leave that with you as a, a side trip for those that are inclined to spookiness, and we'll move on. Was it not thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? That's kind of fun. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforteth you. Who art thou, that thou shouldst be afraid of a man that shall die, and the son of a man who shall be made like grass? There's that allusion of grass again. We talked about that before. And forgettest the Lord thy Maker who hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and hast feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed and that he should not die in the pit nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord thy God who divided the sea, whose waves roared, The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, Thou art my people. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth. This has to do with the leaders having fled. This is also mentioned in Jeremiah 43, if you remember that. Neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. These two things are come unto thee. Who shall be sorry for thee, desolation and destruction and famine and the sword? By whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted, they lie at the head of all the streets, and, and like, a, like an antelope in the net, they are full of fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. Thus saith thy Lord, thy God, who pleadeth the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. But I will put it in the hand of those who afflict thee, who have said to thy soul, Bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body like the ground and like the street to those who went over. Call to Jerusalem. In trouble, but there will be a time when that will be taken away. Notice the promise that God makes. He's not through with Jerusalem. He's not through with Israel. He's yet to deal with their enemies. Now, what he treats us now to is a vision of Jerusalem in the kingdom age. In the kingdom age. Again, we have this interesting marker. Awake, awake. Third time it appears. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for nothing, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Now that's interesting. It's fascinating as you study Leviticus through that the redemptive coin was always silver. Silver Levitically speaks of blood. Even Judas used that expression when he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor, trying to undo his bargain. He says, Behold, I have betrayed innocent blood. Blood and silver are linked as symbols together. It's interesting, here we have the redemption coin, but not with money. We're talking not substitute or symbolic blood now in the terms of the half-shekel redemptive coin or whatever. We're talking here about the shedding of blood. In the Torah, way, way back, in fact, even way long before Moses, probably in the Garden of Eden, was the institution of the idea that by the shedding of innocent blood would man be covered. When Adam and Eve made their fig leaf things, God replaced those with coats of skins. In that subtle hint we now understand, was the institution of the Levitical system teaching them, practically speaking, that it was by innocent blood being shed, they would be covered. The Levitical system didn't start with Moses, it was instituted then. In Noah's time, God could speak to Noah of the clean and unclean animals. That's a Levitical distinction.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.